We read together from Acts 16, verse 9 to 34. What did you think when we read the passage together? Were your minds still on Moses? Were you moved? It took place in the year 50. We're in 2018. Paul and his missionary team, they've gone through what we would call Turkey. They've come to the very west coast of what we would call Turkey. They're in the town, the city of Troas, and Paul has received this vision to go to Macedonia. If you look across the sea from Troas, looking towards what we call Europe, there's a whole collection of islands. You can't really see what we would call the European coast, but it's over there somewhere, and there's Greece, the southern part's called Achaia, the northern part's called Macedonia, and in this dream that Paul has had, there's a man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul and his missionary team conclude that that's what they must do. The way to help the Macedonians is what? The way to help the Macedonians is to preach the gospel to them. So into a boat they get, they sail one day, and there's the island of Samothrace on their left. They sail another day, and they arrive at the coast of Europe, and the gospel arrives in Europe in the year 50. They go to the port of Neapolis, then they walk 20 miles. I wonder how long that took. And they come to Philippi. Philippi. Everybody wants to visit Philippi. Why? Because it's a colony. If you're a citizen of Philippi, you're not a citizen of the Roman Empire. You are a citizen of Rome. Whatever the privileges they have in Rome, they have in Philippi. It's the place to live. And Paul and Silas and the missionary team, including Luke, arrive there to preach the gospel. So the story is there in Acts chapter 16, verse 9 and verse 34, up to verse 34. In the recent, not so recent now, referendum, I don't know whether you voted to leave or whether you voted to remain. I have no idea. I'm not going to ask, but this I know, that we are in Europe and the gospel came to Europe and what distinguishes the west end of Asia so that it's actually called a continent where geographically it isn't is the fact that the gospel came there and gave it a distinct culture which permeated through the whole thing so it took on a distinct identity which we now call Europe. And it all happened, it all started in that year 50. Well, that's not our subject this morning. Our subject is to notice four things which spring out of this page and strike us in a way which we can never forget. And the first thing is this. There is such a thing as instant conversion. Did you see that in the passage? There is such a thing as instant conversion. Now, there are two conversions in this passage. The first one there is in verses 13, 14, and 15. Paul and Silas and the missionary team can't find a synagogue. That's where you would normally preach the gospel first. There obviously aren't enough Jewish men in this city, but surely there must be some people who worship the God of the Jews. They find out that there's a place where people gather to pray down by the river. And to that prayer meeting... Paul and Silas go, and as Paul explains the gospel to the women who've assembled there, like the sun opening a flower, Lydia's heart 
opens to the gospel. There's the conversion of someone with a, a gentle, tender nature. She's interested in the things of God. She's in a place of prayer. She believes that the God who is, is the God of the Jews. And as the gospel is preached, straight away, on the spot, the Lord opens her heart and Lydia is converted. There's, there's one conversion. But the chapter is mostly taken up with another conversion. And you'll find that from verse 23 through to verse 34. It's the conversion of the jailer. In this colony, there is a jail, a Roman jail. Now, in the Roman Empire, you only go to jail for a while. You only go to jail while you're waiting for trial. When the trial has been held, a number of different things can happen to you. You can be freed if you're innocent. You can be executed. You can be fined. Or you can be banished. But nobody, but nobody in the Roman Empire is kept in prison. That's an idea we have today, but the Romans never had that idea. But while you are in prison waiting for your trial, it's a very secure place indeed, and there's not a chance in all the world that you will escape because the jailer knows that if you escape, whatever happened or might have happened to you will happen to him. So he makes very sure that none of his prisoners escape. You can't, not anybody can be a jailer. You can't just leave school in the Roman Empire and say, I'll be a jailer, and then fill in the forms and hope for the best. You've got to have served in the army. You've got to have been to at least to the rank of sergeant, preferably higher. You've got to have shed blood and been in warfare. You've got to be a man amongst man, men who's, who's not at all squeamish. This jailer is not a sissy. He's not a Nancy boy, as they used to say. He's not a pansy, or as they say in French, he's not a nyon-nyon. I really think that's a great word, don't you? He's, he's not one of those. This is a really tough man. Can the gospel win people like that? Can people like that be converted? And the fact is that the gospel can convert him just as thoroughly and just as quickly as it converts gentle, tender Lydia. Because when the gospel message is accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel message actually is all-conquering. It's invincible. It's irresistible. And so we have another instant conversion. And yet, there are some differences between them. Did you notice them? Years ago, I took some boys out about half past two in the morning because they had never, ever seen the sunrise. That's fairly typical for your average teenager, I think. But they'd never seen the sunrise, and they were already in their teens. They were terrified. We were miles and miles from the nearest streetlight, somewhere on the Welsh coast in Ceredigion, and these city lads were terrified. Why? 
because they had no idea that the night time was as dark as that. You couldn't see anything. But they noticed, after about half an hour, that they could begin to see a few things. Just make out a few blurred objects. Now, one of them turned out to be a donkey, which absolutely terrified them because it decided to make its, uh, its distinctive noises in the middle of the night, but that's another story. But as the night went on, they noticed that the blurs became shapes and the shapes became silhouettes and the silhouettes took on a little bit of light and a little bit of colour and the colour became more and more vivid and then came the moment, the moment when the, the sun came over the horizon. There has to be a moment, you know. And there are people like that. Lydia was a bit like that. Things begin to dawn on you. It dawns on her somehow that she should be seeking God. It dawns on her that the God she should be seeking is the God of the Jews. It dawns on her that the place she's likely to find the God of the Jews is amongst people who are also looking for him or already worshipping him. Little by little, things are dawning on her. And then as Paul preaches, the sun comes over the horizon. Because there has to be a moment. You can't be dead and alive. You can't be blind and then at the same time seeing. You can't be lost and at the same time found. You can't be unconverted and at the same time converted. There actually has to be a moment when it takes place. But... It's like some of you with, you've got a Christian mum and a Christian dad. You actually can't remember the time when there wasn't prayer in your house. And the Bible's been opened as long as you can remember. And little things have begun to, to dawn on you. And then you believe a little bit and then you're not quite so sure. Maybe I've just been brainwashed by mum and dad. And then you don't believe. And then you do believe. And then you believe a bit more and then you think, no, 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 I've just been, I've just been, this is just the fruit of my upbringing. And then you doubt, then you believe a bit more. And at last you find that you're believing for yourself. And, you, and the moment comes when you know that you trust the Lord Jesus Christ. I often think about the, the animals going into the ark, don't you? Noah's ark. How, how do you think the antelope got into Noah's ark? One jump, I think, don't you think? How did the snail get into Noah's Ark? Have you ever thought about that? Well, am I the only one who lies in bed thinking things, these things? <laughs> the snail comes up the gangplank. A few hours later, he's still coming up the gangplank. Ten hours later, he's still coming up the gangplank. But the moment does come when he gets to the top and then he just falls over. And he's in the ark. There has to come a moment. That's a Lydia-type conversion. Now, how about a jailer-type conversion? What's that like? Let's go out at half past two in the morning. It's so dark you can't even see your hand in front of your face. You blink. And the split second your eyelids come up, the sun is above your head, 
in the fullness of its strength, beating down upon you, and you're completely dazzled and overwhelmed by the light of it all. That's a bit like a jailer conversion. I don't think he'd ever heard of Jesus Christ until the magistrates come to the prison and they say, these two fellows have been preaching someone called Jesus Christ. You, you make sure that they don't escape. He's a pagan. He's had pagan parents brought up in Italy. He's had a, a pagan schooling like some of you. He's had a pagan education, pagan influences, pagan friends, been in a pagan army and made pagan vows. He's a, he's a pagan. But before the night is out, he's right with God. He's a child of God. He's indwelt by God. He's at peace with God. He knows the Son of God. He has the life of God. He's converted very quickly indeed from nothingness. Has he read a sermon before or read a book or listened to a, something, some Christian preacher somewhere? Almost certainly not. But he's converted and he's converted instantly. I think this is, this is something that we all ought to be very pleased about. Now, I don't know lots of you this morning. I don't know why you're here. It's possible that you've come in here unconverted. And I'm glad to be here as a Christian preacher to tell you, you could be converted, you could be converted before you actually leave the meeting this morning. And that should be an encouragement to all of you who are already Christians. You, all of you witness to your friends, don't you, from when you get the opportunity? It's a wonderful thing to know that in one conversation, sometimes people are converted. They come from darkness to light and from unbelief to faith in an instant, because there's such a thing as instant conversion. So what was it? that made such a great impression on the jailer. Well, along come the magistrates with these two fellows. Two fellows who've been beaten severely, flogged with rods, stripped naked, dragged through the streets, and they're brought to the jailer, and the jailer is told, keep these fellows secure. And we read, he takes them to the inner prison and fastens their feet in the stocks. Have we any idea what the inner prison is? You go along the corridor and down. And you go along the corridor and down. And you go along the corridor and down. And eventually on the lowest level, maybe several levels below the ground, there is the inner prison. You're thrown in. Your feet are fastened in the stocks. The door is slammed and you're left in the dark and the damp. When men knew that they were being taken to the inner prison, how did the average prisoner behave, do you think? How did Paul and Silas behave? We know a lot about their behavior. Would they have complained? No. Would they have resisted? No. Would they have abused the jailer? No. They would have complied. So here they are in the stocks, in the inner prison, in the dark, in the damp, bleeding, hungry, thirsty. The jailer goes to bed, kisses Mrs. Jailer goodnight, 
about to go off to sleep. And then what does he hear? The prisoners, the prison's gone quiet. That's strange. Why? Because there's a duet. <laughs> there's two men singing, praying and singing. It's gurgling up from the inner prison. Everybody stops and listens to them. And the jailer goes to bed knowing that Christians, they're just not like, they're just not like other people. Then there's the extraordinary events of the night. There's an earthquake. Maybe that happened from time to time in Philippi, but not like this. The foundations of the prison are shaking. Every single door is open. You can understand the chains coming out from between the bricks. But how does an earthquake actually take chains off wrists and manacles off ankles? What sort of earthquake is that? The prisoners must have escaped, he thinks, the jailer. And he's about to kill himself because whatever should have happened to them is going to happen to him, so he may as well get it over and done with. And then, from a man who cannot see him, in total darkness, comes a voice which says, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. What sort of earthquake is that? We're not a prisoner escapes what's going through the jailer's mind I don't know is he a man who's scared to die no and yet he's scared this is obviously of God God is and I have spent all these years neglecting him I've ill-treated his messengers I'm not scared to die because I was about to kill myself. But who's the first person you meet when, when you die? He's not ready to meet God. So he goes into the inner prison. He falls down in front of the prisoners. He calls them, sirs. When did you do that to a prisoner? He brings them out and he says, what must I do to be saved? And fortunately, it was Paul and Silas who were in the prison. <laughs> Some modern age preachers wouldn't have very much to say. But here's a man terrified of God, aware of his need of salvation, filled with despair and bewilderment. What must I do to be saved? And now in the middle of the night, there's the jailer and his wife and his children. Don't, don't think there's any infants present here because they're all capable of staying up in the night and they're all capable of hearing a sermon in the middle of the night as Paul and Silas preach to them and explain to them that they have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they'll be saved. What goes for the jailer goes for everybody else. And the man is converted. So have you been converted? He believed every word, you see. 
So he was saved. And he was saved at once. Do you believe every word? If you do, you'll be saved. And you'll be saved at once. The gospel's about God. Do you believe in him? The gospel is about the holiness of God. Have you thought about that? The gospel is about the law of God. You've broken it, you know. The gospel is about the damnation of God, which is a certainty. The gospel is about the love of God. Isn't one sinners to perish? The gospel is about the Son of God. The Father sent him into the world to live the life that we've never lived. The gospel is about the death of the Son of God. In his infinite person, he bore the infinite punishment that we deserve as he died on the cross. The gospel is about the resurrection of the Son of God. There's a living saviour to bring us back to God. The gospel's about repentance. You've got to change your mind about Jesus Christ. Change your mind about him. Stop ignoring him. Stop keeping a distance from him. Change your mind about him. Realise who he is. Change your mind about him and about yourself. You're not the great person you think you are. You're, you're a sinner like everybody else and far more than you realise. The gospel's about faith in Jesus Christ. You don't keep him at a distance. You come to him. There's no hope anywhere else. You love him and follow him and obey him and enjoy him and die with him and live with him. And the jailer heard the gospel, believed it, and was converted instantly. Because there's such a thing as instant conversion. Well, somebody's looking at that clock and they're thinking, hmm, that's only the first point. How long is this going to go? How long is this going to go on? Well, friends, you'll be pleased to know each each point this morning is shorter than the previous one. So let's go to the second point. You'll find it in verse 33. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and immediately he and all his family were baptized. There is such a thing as instant baptism. In the middle of the night, in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas, on profession of their faith, baptized the jailer and his wife and his family because they've all heard the word, all believe the gospel, all come to Christ. They don't even wait until the morning. What do you think of that? That's the New Testament's unalterable pattern. When people come to Christ, they get baptized. It's the New Testament way of owning up to being a Christian. So if you're owning up to be a Christian, own up in the way that Jesus Christ said you should. And be baptized. There is a word, you know, for people who are professing believers and are not baptized. 
there's a word in the English language. Are you one of these people who's a, professing to be a Christian, but you're not baptized? Well, the English word is weirdo. That's what you are. You're unusual. Can't find you anywhere on the page of the New Testament, except in one exception. And the one exception is the, the thief on the cross, which isn't you. Delay is abnormal, not always sinful. For example, Fred might be 12 years old and a true Christian, but there are very good reasons why a 12-year-old might need to wait. Doreen is 14. She's a true Christian, but she's not baptized because her mum and dad won't agree. So she'll wait until they do agree or maybe wait until she's 18 and even then she'd prefer them to agree. If somebody else can't be baptised just yet because suitable arrangements have to be made with the church or there's problems relating to their health or it's important that members of their family should be there who can't be there on, except on particular dates. There are a number of different reasons why someone might need to delay a little while. But frankly, delay is abnormal. Delay is abnormal. If anyone had an excuse for putting off baptism, it was the jailer, wasn't it, don't you think? He could have said, what? Get baptised in the middle of the night? He could have done, but he didn't. He could have said, what do you think they'll all say in the guardroom? Can you imagine the jokes they're going to make about me? He could have said, what will the magistrates say when they hear that not only have I let the people out of the inner prison, but I've called them sirs and I've allowed them to baptise me? I'll lose my job. But he didn't. Because in the New Testament the preaching of the gospel makes it clear that as soon as you're a Christian, you have a number of duties. But the first duty is to be baptized. Now then somebody says, isn't the Lord's table important? Of course it is. But it's not first. Isn't giving to the, the Lord's work important? Very important but it's not first. Isn't developing a prayer life important? Of course it is, but it's not first. Isn't getting my doctrine sorted out important? It's got to be done, and actually it's a lifelong work, but it's not first. Isn't it important that I witness to my friends? Yes, it is, but it's not first. Baptism is the first duty of the Christian life and you're a very strange person if you say, Lord, help me sort my doctrine out. Lord, help me sort my prayer out. Lord, help me sort my witness out. And all the time you're knowingly neglecting what is first. In fact, in the New Testament, saving faith and baptism are so intimately linked that the New Testament dares to say, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Or, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you. That's New Testament language. You look into the garden one day, or into the backyard, and you see that it's going to rain, and there's toys in the back garden. So you say to your children, it's going to rain. Get your toys in. Do it now. 20 minutes later, you look out of the window and the rain clouds are nearer and there are toys in the back garden. What would you say to your children? Why haven't you got your toys in? And one of them says to you, I've been thinking about it, but I don't think the time's right yet. Would that wash, wash with you? And then one of them has the, the nerve to say to you, I've been praying about getting my toys in, but the Lord hasn't yet laid it on my heart. I think a child like that might need a little encouragement. Don't you agree? And yet I meet people who say they're believers, remember unbaptized, months, years later, and do you know what they say to me? I've been thinking about it. Or I've been praying about it. But there's nothing at all has happened. But it says in my Bible, immediately he and all his family were baptized. There's such a thing as instant conversion. There's such a thing as instant baptism. There's such a thing as instant usefulness. Look now at verse 33. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. Let's think about it. Big hands. Military hands, cruel hands, blood-stained hands, arresting hands, throwing, fastening hands. Gentle hands. Washing the back and there's blood and pebbles and dirt and those same hands are washing the backs clean. How do you think Paul and Silas felt? And then they've been thrown into the inner prison. <coughs> they've been preaching today. They've been dragged through the streets. They've been stripped naked. They've been beaten severely. They've been thrown into the prison. When do they last drink? When do they last eat? But we read verse 34. When he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. How did Paul and Silas feel, do you think? Weren't they grateful for those kind hands? Weren't they grateful for 
the kindness of a meal and the company whatever you can do or can't do for the Savior you can be kind who's the kindest boy in your school who's the kindest girl in your group who's the kindest man in your office who's the kindest woman in your street the kindest neighbor who's the kindest employer who's the kindest employee do you need training to be kind do we have to have courses on kindness don't we all instinctively know what it is and do you know what happens to Christians who are kind eventually somebody says why are you like that what makes you tick and you say kindly do you really want to know have you got a few minutes and there's your opportunity I'm not very gifted somebody says I can't speak I can't do this I can't do that can you be kind is this a kind world do you think do you live in a kind city are most people around you kind many of them are but who should be kinder than all of them well isn't God kind isn't that why he sent the Savior isn't the life of Jesus marked by practical <coughs> kindness isn't that why he made blind people see and deaf people hear isn't that why he delivered demon possessed people from their terrible terrible bondage isn't that why he raised some people back from from death to life isn't it because of the the kindness of God isn't it a godly thing to be kind and if I'm faithful in a little thing which actually is a massive thing isn't it more likely that something bigger maybe even than that will be put into my hands but if it if that isn't the case does it matter there's such a thing as instant usefulness which brings us to the end there's such a thing as instant conversion there's such a thing as instant baptism there's such a thing as instant usefulness there's such a thing as instant well there it is look at it in verse 34 now when he had brought them into his house he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household there's such a thing as instant joy do you know what it's like to have the weight of guilt crushing down upon you and you can't get rid of it it's like a burden which is weighing heavier every day and then it's gone what feeling do you get then and what's it like to know that you're controlled by something bigger than yourself you're actually a child of the devil 
And then you're released from all that. You hear that God is your heavenly father and he says, call me dad. He does, you know, Romans 8, Galatians 4. What sort of emotion would that be? Do you know what it's like to go to bed at night and have no peace? And then one night you go to bed and you do. And that's the way it is for the rest of your life. Do you know what it's like to feel empty? So empty that you, you often wonder what the real me is like, but it's just like your cardboard inside. And then there's the growing awareness that not only your soul, but your body is indwelt by God. What sort of emotion does that provoke? When God saves us, does he lead us into an emotional graveyard? <coughs> or does he do something inside us which makes us feel different? Isn't the fruit of the Spirit love, joy? What comes next? Peace. And as the old Puritan said, joy is peace. Dancing. Peace is joy. Resting. Something happens inside the Christian and it's wonderful. Other people wake up and shiver because they have those moments when they remember that the years are running away and the next great event in their life is actually the end of it. But the Christian thinks to be with Christ is far better. When I am absent from the body, I will be present with the Lord. And it's wonderful. Did you see Billy Graham? Interviewed on the TV this week? Yes, on our TV, BBC, ITV. It was a recording, of course. He died during the week. The reporter said, and what will happen to you, Mr. Graham, when you die? Did his face drop? An angel, he said, will take me by the hand and will introduce me into the very presence of Jesus and it will be the most wonderful moment in my existence. There is such a thing, you know, as instant joy. So we've learned four things. There's such a thing as instant conversion. So what's stopping you being converted? There's such a thing as instant baptism. And some of you, you have the power to bring joy to your saviour, joy to your church, joy to your pastor, and joy to yourself by being baptised. There's such a thing as instant usefulness. Let's be kind. 
There's such a thing as instant joy. And my prayer for you all and for me is that every one of us will experience it more and more. Let us sing a hymn together.